Welcome back, everyone, as we continue our studies in the book of Leviticus. And this week we find ourselves in Torah portion, Achre or Achremot, as some will put it. And it derives its name from the first verse, which is Leviticus 16, chapter, chapter 16, verse 1. And Adonai spoke to Moses, Achre Mot, after the death of the Shanei B'nei Aharon, the two sons of Aaron. We've spoken before about why, possibly, um, Nadav and Avi, who died, and, uh, of course, we're told they brought alien fire. And we're also given an indication here that they uh, entered behind the curtain, the paraket, into the Holy of Holies. There's also an indication that they were drinking. And what's interesting is that those three words, Shanae, B'nai, Aharon, two sons of Aaron, if you take the last letter of each of those three words, it spells Yud Yud Nun, which is the Hebrew word for Yayin, wine. So maybe there's a hint there that they were uh, drinking a bit and kind of lost control and overstepped themselves. But the question I want to ask is this. Here we are in chapter 16, and it says that God spoke to Moses after the deaths of Aaron's two sons. And it begins to give him instructions about how the proper way is of entering into the Holy of Holies. And the question is this, not of Anavihu died way back at the beginning of chapter 10. Chapter 10. Here we're in chapter 16. And if God spoke these things to Moses after the deaths of not of Anavihu, then why isn't this chapter located back there right after chapter 10? But instead, we have five and a half chapters intervening between the deaths of Aaron's two sons and then this reference to them and the proper way then to enter into the Holy of Holies. Why did God do this? Because if you review the last half of chapter 10, uh, we, we see a wrinkle in how Aaron is supposed to be serving as high priest in the tabernacle while he is at the same time grieving deeply the deaths of his two oldest sons. And then when you get to chapter 11, it talks about kosher laws, uh, the difference between clean animals and unclean animals, animals that we can consider as food and, and other animals which are forbidden as food. And then you get into chapter 12, which discusses um, the purification rituals for a woman who has just given birth. And then it goes right on in to the laws of leprosy, zarat. Uh, leprosy that can be on the body, leprosy that can be on uh, objects and utensils, and then leprosy that can be on houses themselves. Why do we have these five and a half chapters between the death of Aaron's two sons, and then the discussion of kind of what went wrong and, and then how to repair it, and the proper way of approaching God. What's going on here? This is a question that is, has been a topic of discussion in uh, Judaism and among the rabbis for centuries, as you can imagine, and so we're going to take up the discussion ourselves. I think the key to understanding why these particular five chapters, five and a half chapters, are located where they are, 
is because really they are the topic of discussion that really reveals the issues at hand. Let's take a look going back to Leviticus chapter 10 and starting with verse 10. Leviticus 10 verses 10 and 11. God speaks and he tells Moses and Aaron, says, you are to, number one, distinguish between the holy and the common, the holy and the secular, that which is set apart to God and that which is not. You have to distinguish between these two things. Not of an who obviously did not. They couldn't tell which fire was holy and which fire was alien. The second thing, and between the unclean and the clean. This would explain why we have the, uh, the commandments concerning clean and unclean animals. And all through the discussion of zarat, leprosy, um, the priest must distinguish and state whether the person is tahor, clean, or he's tameh, he's unclean, and has to live outside the camp. And a third thing, you are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes, the statutes. Your translation may use a different uh, term. It may use the term decrees, but whatever the term is there, we must understand that in Hebrew, it's the word chukim, chukim right there. That's not a very straight line, chukim. And the rabbis tell us that chukim, of all the different kinds of laws and rules that God gives, the chukim are very unique in that they're illogical, at least to us, to our own human reasoning. They don't make sense. Most of the commandments God gives in the Torah, you could derive at if you have a, a basic desire for morality and some common sense, and you could figure out that murdering people is bad, stealing from people is bad, committing adultery is bad, lying is bad, and you could come up with uh, most of the commandments that you find there, not all, but most. And we see this reflected in the law codes of many of the ancient civilizations and, and modern ones as well. But the chukim are commandments you would never come up with, never in a million years on your own. These are the ones that defy human reasoning. And it's the chukim that God is pointing to here, that you are to teach the people of Israel the chukim that Adonai has spoken to them by Moses. Because if you don't teach them, they won't know them yet they are vitally important for the people to know. They'll never figure them out on their own. They'll never arrive at them through their own logic. They must be taught because it's what God spoke to Moses, and now you are to speak to the people. Now, later on, when we get near the end of our Torah portion, because our Torah portion is chapters 16, 17, and 18, and near the end of Leviticus 18, uh, our, our, our portion in chapter 18, verses 3 and 4, it says, you shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt. Because the people are preparing to go across into the land. Don't do as they did in the land of Egypt, or as they do in the land of Egypt, 
where you lived. And you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their chukot. Now here's something interesting. When you see the word chuk, which is one of these rules that defies logic, sometimes it's masculine, sometimes it's feminine. Sometimes it's chukim, which is the masculine plural ending. Sometimes it's chukot, which is the feminine plural ending. That defies logic right there. I think it's kind of humorous that the very word that refers to illogical commandments itself has an illogical thing about it. It's sometimes feminine, sometimes masculine. And in this passage, it happens to be feminine. You shall not walk in their statutes, their chukot. In other words, God is saying, I give you some rules that are illogical, but you can find illogical rules everywhere in the world. Don't walk in those illogical rules. Walk in my illogical rules. Their illogical rules, and we can see the results of them in our modern society, um, rules that if you call a biological male a man, will cancel you. If you decide one day that you're not a man, you're a woman, okay, then you can use the women's restroom and play women's sports. This is utterly illogical and foolish and contrary to God's word. So we see that even the, 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 the world of the non-believer, the pagan world, it also has plenty of chukot, things that make no sense whatsoever. He says, you shall follow my rules and keep my chukot, my statutes, and walk in them. I am Adonai, your God. And then when you get close to the end of the chapter in verse 26, God again says, but you shall keep my chukot, my illogical rules, and my rules and do none of these abominations, either the native or the stranger, the sojourner who sojourns among you. So we see here that this principle of God giving some illogical rules is very important. It's very important. I want us to move from the Torah portion just for a moment, or two, or three, and I would like us to go to Psalms. Psalms, and we're going to look at Psalm 19 and Psalm 119. So look at Psalm 19 first. This is a very familiar passage in Psalm 19, beginning with verse 7. And here we find a list of the various kinds of laws and rules and, and judgments that God gives. And it's a, a beautiful passage. I've, I know you've heard it many times. In verse 7 it says, The Torah of Adonai is perfect, restoring the soul. So the word Torah is used there, which means instruction. The testimony of Adonai is sure, making wise the simple. Testimony is the word edut. An aid is a testimony. Edut means the testimony of. The testimonies are simply God's attributes as they've been revealed in history and through his word. Verse 8, the precepts of Adonai 
This is the word pekude, the precepts of Adonai are right, rejoice in the heart. Now, a pekud is a word that has to do with counting and appointing and assigning. And when you see the term pekude, or in my translation, precepts, it has to do with those rules that have to do with me and the work that God's assigned me to do. This is a very general sense of the word, but it comes down to are you doing the work that God's given you to do, that he's assigned you to do. And he, he gives us gender roles, and women have certain rules to fulfill. Men have other rules to fulfill. Farmers have rules. Priests have rules. Uh, landowners and homeowners have rules. What are the rules that apply to your life? What are the rules that have to do with you and your calling and the position in this world that God has assigned you? He has rules for judges, for leaders, for those in a position of service and those in a position of serving by being in a position of rulership. And then the next phrase says the commandment, the mitzvah, the commandment. This is uh, a mitzvah is the kind of commandment a a general would give his army and do this, just do it, be brave and go forward and do it. The mitzvah of Adonai is pure, enlightening the eyes. In other words, if you want to understand God's mitzvot, do them. When we do them, our eyes are enlightened and we see things more clearly. And then it says, the fear of Adonai is clean, enduring forever. The judgments, this is the mishpatim. We have a section in the book of Exodus called Mishpatim. And the Mishpatim have to do primarily with the rules governing relationships. A man with his neighbor, a man with his servant, a man with his king, a man with his property and those around him and and all those interpersonal relationships. But do you know something missing here? It goes on, the, the Mishpatim of Adonai are true, they are righteous altogether, they're more desirable than gold, just the much fine gold, sweeter also than honey, and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and keeping them is great reward as you go on. You notice that chukot, chukim, are not listed. That's odd. Why aren't they here in this list? And I think the reason is a couple of things is because the chukot are hidden from us. Many of these other rules, as I said, we could derive through our own human reasoning, human logic. The chukim and chukot, mm -mm, you can't do that. But if you back up one chapter, back up to chapter 18 and verse 22, it says, For all of his mishpatim were before me, and I did not put away his Chukot from me. It's interesting that these, the last one of our list in chapter 19, and then Chukot are put here a chapter earlier. <clears throat> I think God's hand was all over the arrangement and the order of the Psalms when they were put together into this book. And it's almost like these Chukot are foundational, as if God is saying, if you are not willing to obey me when I'm telling you to do something that is not exactly reasonable, that does not make common sense, then maybe the reason you're keeping all my other commandments 
is only because they do make common sense, because they kind of confirm what you already think. You know you can have two completely different reasons for obeying a commandment. We should obey it because God said it, not just because it makes sense. And we should obey it because God said it, even when it does not make sense. So in chapter 18, we see Mishpatim and the Chuchot standing by themselves. But now let's go to chapter 119, Psalm 119. The longest psalm in the Bible and the longest chapter in the Bible. And the entire psalm is a psalm of praise to God for his Torah, for his rules, because it's by his rules that we can live life the way we're meant to live it. His rules are what provide the handbook on how to be a human being. And he opens the chapter with the list of the rules, the the kinds of rules that God gives. Now, you probably all know this already, but Psalm 119 is divided up into groups of eight verses. And you may have in your Bible, right above the first verse, the word Aleph, and maybe the Hebrew letter Aleph, because each of the first eight verses in Hebrew begin with the letter Aleph. Then each of the next eight verses begin with the letter Beit. Each of the next eight verses begin with the letter Gimel, and it works its way all the way through the 22 letters of the alphabet until you come to the letter Tav. And um, so that's why the chapter is so long. Why groups of eight? Eight's the number of life. And it's by God's Torah and by his instructions that we live. So let's jump right in. How blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the Torah of Adonai. How blessed are those who observe his idut, his testimonies, who seek him with all their heart. They also do no unrighteousness. They walk in his ways. You have ordained your Pekudim, your precepts, that we should keep them diligently. Oh, that my ways may be established to keep your chok, your statutes. There's the word. It's included here. But let's go on. Then I shall not be ashamed. It's very interesting. Oh, that my ways may be established to keep your illogical commandments. Then I won't be ashamed. I can only imagine the shame of us believers, and I include myself in this, who abstained from obeying God in certain areas because what he told us to do wasn't logical. What will be our excuse when we do stand face to face with him? And he asks us, why didn't you do that? What are you going to say? What am I going to say? Well, it didn't make sense that I can hear the Lord saying, oh, so it's your logic that's your God. It's your logic that's your master and not me. And he'll say to me, Grant, aren't you the one always quoting the verse that my ways or God's ways are higher than our ways and his thoughts than our thoughts? So if I'm giving you an order, wouldn't you expect it to be something outside your realm of logic? It's quite convicting to my heart. I hope it is to yours. Then I shall not be ashamed when I look upon all your mitzvah, your mitzvot, your commandments. 
But let's go on and finish the next two verses. I shall give thanks to you with uprightness of heart when I learn your righteous mishpot, your mishpatim. I shall keep your statutes. And there's the word chok again. It's found twice in this list. It's found twice. It's almost as if here in Psalm 119, David is making up for the omission in Psalm 19. So why am I dwelling so much on this? The reason is, is because our Torah portion dwells so much on it, as we've seen here in chapter 18. Not of an Avihu died because they did what made sense to them. Instead of exercising discernment and obedience and patience in following what God says. And there's a very important warning here for us. A book I've been reading, I'm almost finished with it, and uh, one I highly recommend. It's by Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, who passed away here just uh, within the last year or two. And it's called Celebrating Life. It's a small book, and it's a collection of his writings on various important topics in life. And it's, he, he was a brilliant man and a godly and righteous man. And his writing is, is uh, really excellent. And I know you'll enjoy it, and it'll bless your heart. It's a book I know I'll be reading uh, again in the future. But as I was thinking about these Chukim, God's illogical commands. I was thinking about our society today because I don't want you to get the idea that we are to set human reasoning and logic aside altogether. Of course not. It's human logic and reasoning that has provided all of the um, innovative breakthroughs and inventions and, and um, the conveniences that we all enjoy today. But boy, it sure hasn't done a single thing for our moral code, for making us better people, for making us more godly people, because human logic simply was not designed to make us better people. It was designed to help us make better cars. And as enlightenment has continued and as we've grown scientifically and technologically, we have continued to put aside the things that don't make logical sense. Things like the Bible, things like the Torah, the things like traditional morality. And we have suffered greatly as a society because of this. So I'm going to read you a paragraph from Rabbi's, Rabbi Sachs's essay called Losing Our Way. He's talking about how, how the culture has declined, especially since the 60s, over the last uh, uh, 50, 60, 70 years. It says, one of the most telling indicators of what has changed came in a comparison between schools in 1940 and 1990, 50 years apart. Teachers were asked the following questions. What are the seven most serious problems you encounter among your pupils? The seven most serious problems. In 1940, the answers were these. Talking out of turn. Chewing gum. Making noise. 
running in corridors, cutting in line, not wearing school uniform, dropping litter. Go 50 years into the future, 1990, in reply to the same questions, teachers answered drug abuse, alcohol abuse, teenage pregnancy, suicide, rape, robbery, assault. Think about that for a moment. We've advanced technologically, but we have fallen so far when it comes to our morality, to our moral compass, to our standards. Human reasoning and logic has not helped us to one iota in becoming more godly people. You know, little children are born with this innate ability to believe things that don't make logical sense. And the Master tells us we must become like a little child to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, that doesn't mean you have to be like a little child to go to heaven when you die. He's talking about entering the kingdom right here and now, experiencing kingdom life here and now. And when we can have faith like a little child, we can begin to experience the joy and the light and the intimacy with God that he wants us to enjoy. But sometimes we start getting a little sophisticated. And as we grow older, this innate ability to just believe God, even when the things he tells us to do are illogical, that tends to erode and decline. And the only way we can recover that is over time and through death. I want to remind you again of the name of our Torah portion. Achre Mot, after death. And I know that in my own life, there are so many times I relied on my own human reasoning and my logic. And you know, there's a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is death. And I've experienced that a number of times, and probably you have too. And it's only after death, achremot, that we can begin to return to just a humble embrace of God's direction. And just do it because we love him. And just to obey him. I'm reminded, I didn't mean to share this, but I'm reminded of another verse in Psalms. And so please take a moment and turn there. It's in Psalm 131, I believe. Psalm 131. I hope I'm right. Yes, Psalm 131. It's only three verses long. So let's read all three verses. Psalm 131. I call this psalm the psalm of self-contentment. Adonai, my heart is not proud, nor my eyes haughty, nor do I involve myself in great matters or in things too difficult for me. Surely I have composed and quieted my soul like a weaned child rest on his mother My soul is like a weaned child on me. O Israel, hope in Adonai from this time forth and forever. 
It's that middle verse, verse 2. Like a weaned child rest on or against his mother. My soul is like a weaned child within me. Think of this image for a second. A child that is not yet weaned rests on its mother's breast because it needs the nourishment she can provide. But that's not what's being spoken of here. He says, like a weaned child. Like a child who doesn't need anything physical from his mother. I don't need her milk anymore. So why is he resting on her breast? Why is he leaning on her? Because he loves her. He got what it needed physically before. But now he's attached to her and loves her. There are many places in Scripture where God takes on a feminine aspect. And even Yeshua says, you know, that God wanted to gather you like a hen gathers her chicks. And there are other places. But um, here is one of my favorites. Because I think God, he gives us everything we need physically, as El Shaddai. He gives us all that we need Then after we get going, we tend to distance ourselves from him, like, thank you very much, but I'll take it from here. But achremot, after we have been beaten up by this world, died to our own way of doing things, we come back and we, like a weaned child, rest against him. And if you haven't reached that point yet, I pray it happens soon. I pray that quickly and soon you'll come to God not because of what you need from him, but simply because you love him and you want to be close to him. Those are the kinds of people who, like little children, can begin to enter the kingdom of heaven and experience it here on earth. Now, what's the greatest illogical thing God has ever done? and given us to do, and that all centers around the Messiah. And as you read chapter 16, uh, chapter 16 is all about the day of Yom Kippur, on the day that the high priest enters into the Holy Folies. He gets to go behind the curtain, but he's got to do it exactly right. And very little of what he's given to do makes any logical sense. You would never derive these rules on your own. And yet, by following these rules... He not only enters into a place of great intimacy with God all by himself, standing there before the ark, but he also provides atonement for all the people. Everything about chapter 16 is about Messiah. And when we read about chapter 16, we read about two goats, two identical goats. They're so alike you can't tell them apart. And you know the story. And and I encourage you, if you're not familiar with chapter 16, go back to one of the teachings that I do every year on Yom Kippur. I go through Leviticus 16. And we go through it verse by verse, so we picture and explain what was going on. And uh, so just go back and listen to one of those. I do it every year at Yom Kippur. We just review and rehearse what takes place here. And then we look at how it was all fulfilled by Yeshua. But going back to the two goats, the priest takes two goats, he stands them there in front of him, 
and he reaches into a box, and there are two lots in there, two, two little uh, um, blocks that have, each has a different word on it. One says Adonai, to the Lord, and the other says Azazel, to Azazel. And he just reaches in, he takes them out, one on the right, one on the left, and he opens his hands, and whichever lot comes up, that's what that goat's mission is assigned. And the goat to Adonai, that's the goat that is killed and its blood is taken in and sprinkled before the Ark of the Covenant. The goat that's assigned to Azazel, that's the goat upon which he confesses all the sins of Israel, rebellious sins, the ignorant sins, the violations, everything they've done, he confesses their sins, puts them on the goat, and that goat is taken out in the wilderness, pushed off a cliff, and dies. And the Torah tells us it bears away all the sins of Israel. This is a chuk. It makes no sense. You have an art scroll, Komish, and if you don't, I recommend you get one. Uh, it's a wonderful book. I've been using one for uh, almost 40 years, 30 years, I don't know. And I, I, I thoroughly enjoy it and I recommend it. There's a footnote to verse 22. It says, The commandment to send a scapegoat, the goat to Azazel, is ascribed by the sages as a chok, <laughs> a decree that is beyond human intelligence. There's the word right there. It doesn't make sense. Indeed, the concept of an animal carrying away all the sins of a nation does seem incomprehensible. And yet, this was God's idea, not man's. And of course, to us, we recognize that these two goats both represent our Messiah. Because not only did Messiah bear away all of our sins, as far as the east is from the west, but he also appeared in the throne room in the temple made without hands above to intercede for us, to make a way for us to enter in. In fact, when you look at chapter 16, all the four major players in this chapter are a picture of Messiah. The goat to Adonai is a picture of the sin offering. The goat to Azazel is the sin bearer. The sin offering is to repair the rift between us and God. It's a way of expressing repentance, a change of heart, something internal. But the sin bearer is what actually removes the guilt of our sins and takes them away. And Yeshua did both. And by the way, let me just uh, insert here, and something I've said before is to remind you, that nowhere in the, the apostolic scriptures is Yeshua's work called an atonement. Nowhere in the Bibles that say that he atoned for our sins. Atonement was carried out by animals, by animal blood. And the word atone, kippur, means to cover over. It means to cover. Yeshua didn't cover our sins. Yeshua did something far, far better. He removed them. He took them away. He didn't paint over the dirt. He washed the dirt away. He took the sins away completely. That is so much better than atonement. So let's make sure we don't make that error. 
Now, if you use the King James, there's a place in there where it does refer to Yeshua's work as an atonement, but it's a bad translation. But there is no place in the Greek where the word atone is used in relationship to what Yeshua did. So, he repairs our relationship with God as the sin offering. He removes our sin as the sin bearer. So the two goats represent these two things that he accomplished. In fact, let's jump ahead just for a moment um, to John 20, verse 17. Remember when Yeshua rose from the dead? Um, he, Mary comes to him, Mary Magdalene, at the tomb, and when she realizes who he is, she just latches on to him. You can imagine they're probably both laughing, and she's just hugging on him. She can't believe that my master is alive. And Yeshua says to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. In other words, I'm on my way to the Holy of Holies. Now, we had two goats in Yom Kippur to represent these two aspects of what Messiah did, appearing before the Father and then bearing the sins away. So here, I think, is a reference to what is pictured by the goat to Adonai. But in Ephesians 4, verses 9 and 10, Paul writes, in saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. So here's talking about descent. Now, it's uh, interesting. In Yom Kippur, the, the blood of the goat to Adonai is shed first and taken into the Holy of Holies. And then the scapegoat is sent out into the wilderness. But when it comes to Yeshua, the order is reversed. He had died and descended into the innermost parts of the earth. And later, I think it's in Jude and in Peter, it talks about how he, uh, it might be in Corinthians, please forgive my ignorance, I should know this. It talks about he, he proclaimed to the souls that were there. Yeshua spoke to them. But then here at the resurrection in John 20, he says, oh, don't cling to me, I still have to go ascend to the Father. Why is the order reversed? Because it's a menorah pattern. And so on one side of the menorah, what comes first is connected to what comes last. So in Yom Kippur, the blood of the goat of the Lord is taken in the Holy of Holies, and then the scapegoat's driven out bearing the sins. Yeshua, he descended first, bearing our sins away, and then he ascends to the Lord. So you can see that the arms of the menorah connect. So anyways, I should have put that a little sooner in my notes. So the two goats are both pictures of Messiah. But the goat is to the, the scapegoat, the goat to Azazel, must be led out into the wilderness by an ish-iti, an ish-iti. And we don't know quite how to, to translate this. It's in chapter 16, and you'll find it in verse 21. And it says there, Aaron shall lean his two hands upon the head of the living he-goat and confess upon it. Now, this is the goat to Azazel. All the iniquities of the children of Israel, all their rebellious sins among all their sins, place them upon the head of the he-goat and send it with a ish-iti, a designated man, to the wilderness. 
the he-goat will bear upon itself all their iniquities to an uninhabited land, and he shall send the he-goat to the desert, to the wilderness. This is the only animal found anywhere in the Tanakh that actually bears sins. And of course, it's a picture, but it is a picture of Messiah. And it's the only animal. All the other animals, sin offerings, guilt offerings, that had anything to do with sin and error, they're blood atoned. It covered sin, but this is the only one whose death bears away sin. But he's taken into the wilderness by an ish-iti. The the best way to translate this is a timely man. There's the word ish, which means man, and the word it is the word for time. So it's a man of time. Very interesting. And you can make of it what you will, but this also is a picture of Yeshua. Because the goat to Azazel did not lead itself into the wilderness. But Yeshua did lead himself to the cross. He walked it on his own. He wasn't drugged there. He walked it on his own. He accompanied himself. He is the sacrifice and he is the Ish-Iti who took the sacrifice and laid it down of his own free will. People sometimes ask me, if it's Messiah's sinlessness that makes him the fit sacrifice to take away our sins, then why not a baby? A baby is sinless. Or why not a lamb? A lamb is sinless. And the reason is because a baby or a lamb can't choose it. The only fit sacrifice to remove our sins is one who can choose to do it himself. And that is Yeshua. So he's, the, he's represented by the goat who goes in before the Father to intercede for us and to repair our relationship, to tear that paraket in half so the way is open. He is the sin-bearer, like the goat to Azazel, that takes away his sins, but he's also the Ishiti who chose to do that and overcame his own human nature, and he did have one, to overcome his own resistance and reluctance. Father, be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. He made himself go to the cross. And then the high priest, who's like the MC of all these events, that's also Yeshua. He's our high priest. And most of the entire book of Hebrews is about that, how he is our high priest. Uh, What an incredible chapter, an amazing chapter. And no wonder the commentators in the art scroll Comish say this doesn't make sense. Because only through reading the Gospels and the Apostolic Scriptures and knowing who Yeshua is and and what he's done, can we possibly interpret the the events of chapter 16? Because now they do make sense. And that's the way it is with all of the kuchim. They don't make sense at first. But when we follow through, they all make perfect sense later. It reminds me of a time when Many, many years ago when Robin and I were dating and I'd gone over to her house and her little brother was sitting at the dining room table 
and he had a cereal box in front of him with a, some cartoon rabbit. I, I don't know, it was kick cereal, whatever. I'm not up on my cereals these days, but there is a, 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 a rabbit on the front, and he had a piece of paper, and he's looking at the box and trying to draw the rabbit. So when he's done, I sit in there with him, and he showed it to me, and I lied and told him it looked great. That <laughs> I said, do you want to try this again? I said, I bet you can do it better if you try something different. He said, okay. And so I said, let's do this. I took the cereal box and turned it upside down. So now the rabbit's upside down. Got him a new piece of paper. I says, now draw it. And he looked at me like I was crazy. This made no sense. I said, just, just humor me. Just try it. So he's like, okay. And so he started drawing. And then when he was finished... We took the box, put it back right side up, and we took the paper and turned it around, and it was accurate. It looked just like the rabbit on the cereal box. It was far superior to the first rabbit he drew. And it was, it was pretty cool. It was a trick I learned from a, a book I read called Drawing on the Right Side of the Brain, or Drawing on the Left Side of the Brain, Drawing on One of the Sides of the Brain. Fascinating book. And, um, and what happened there. The question is, why did the second drawing look so much better? It's because it caused him to look at the same image in a completely different way. Because when he looked at the image when the box was, was, was oriented correctly, all these, these preconceived notions came up about rabbit's ears and a rabbit's mouth and its eyes, and he kind of drew too much from his own notions of what a rabbit looks like. But when we turned the box upside down, no longer looked like a cartoon rabbit. It was triangles and arcs and circles and lines. And so he had to put aside all of his preconceived notions of what this is supposed to look like. And he had to draw completely what was there, what presented itself to his mind. And when he did, it was a much better drawing. This is what God does when he gives us his chukim, when he gives us instructions that are outside of our realm of experience, outside of our preconceived notions, not what we're used to doing, not doing things the old way. And now we simply have to draw according to what the information is that's given us. And to do this with God takes a lot more courage in drawing a a cartoon rabbit from a cereal box. It takes courage. But you know what? When you do it, the results are phenomenal. They're amazing. Because now we've truly trusted God. We've been tested. Because unlike the other commandments, which all to a degree are a test, this one is truly a test. Will you follow me when it doesn't make sense? You know, when the Israelites came up to the Red Sea, um, God tells Moses, and Moses tells the people, just be quiet, stand still, and behold the, don't be afraid, and behold the salvation of Adonai. And, and then he's instructed to, to tell them to go out and walk into the sea. And as we know, the sea parted, and they walked across on dry land. Wow. That wasn't expected. That was outside their, their realm of experience. But now let's fast forward to the Gospels and, and the disciples are in a boat. Yeshua is not with them. 
and they're out trying to cross the Sea of Galilee, and a storm comes up, and they're all getting kind of panicky. And maybe while they were in the middle of their fears, they might have thought, wow, if the master was here, or if Moses was here, they could just part the sea, and and we could go across the other side on dry land. Because parting the sea was a new preconceived notion to them. I'm imagining this, of course. But then what did Yeshua do? He came walking on the water. Now, there's something new. What a miracle that is. And then he invites Peter to get out of the boat and walk on the water with him. And he did for a while. So even the great stories and miracles of what we see God in the scriptures, even those God can surpass in what he has us do. And... um, He always has a new thing that is so far superior to anything that's gone before. This is the kind of God we have. Anyways, we need to move on from chapter 16. And and by the way, in chapter 16 in the passage we read, there are three different terms used for sin. There's sin, which is chetat, which is simply an error. There's iniquities of von, which is a violation. You actually break a commandment to break a law here. Then there's transgression. This is a rebellious sin. And as you know, there are no sacrifices for rebellious sins except for the scapegoat. One of the things, and I've taught this before, but it's worth reminding you of, is that growing up in the church, we often hear that sin is sin, all sin is sin, all sin deserves death. And that's not quite true. Not all sin is just sin. There are different degrees of sin. And they're listed here for us. Katat, which is an error. Avon, which is more serious than katat. And then Pesha, rebellion, which is by far the most serious. And the analogy I use to describe these is this. You're driving to a friend's house, and you've never been there before. And you have the directions, and maybe you have a GPS, and you accidentally pass their street. You've made an error. But there's no harm done. Uh, you lost a little time. You may have arrive a little late, and the food may be a little cold, when you do arrive, but you haven't broken any laws, and so you circle the block and you you get there. That's like chetat. That's an error. Not missing your turn. That's not a a sin, but (laughs) you know what I mean. Um, But now let's say you're going to your friend's house for the first time, and you um, come to a street, and it's a one-way street, and you turn down it to get to your your friend's house, and only after you make the turn you realize, "Uh uh-oh, I'm going the wrong way on a one-way street. Now you've violated a traffic law. You didn't do it on purpose, but if there's a policeman there, you're probably going to get a ticket nonetheless. But Pesha is when you turn down that one-way street the wrong way, and you know it's a one-way street, but you don't care. You think you can get away with it and save a little time. That's a rebellious sin. And that, by far, is more serious than the first two. So 
Just a way to keep these three in mind, because all three are listed there. Well, let's move on. In chapter 17, we have instructions about not bringing sacrifices anywhere except at the tabernacle. Up until this point, and as you read through Genesis, we find that people could make, build an altar and make sacrifices wherever they wanted to. You see this happening all the time in Genesis with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And, uh, but once the tabernacle is built, once there's a place where God's house is, the rule is you only bring your sacrifices here. And then later when the temple's built, you only bring them here at the temple, on the Temple Mount. This is why there are no sacrifices made today, because there's no temple and there's no priesthood. That's going to change in the future, but we have a commandment not to bring sacrifices anywhere except there. So you can still slaughter an animal and cook it and eat it, but it's not considered a sacrifice unless it's brought to the temple. And then as you come on into chapter 17, chapter 18, I think my pages flipped on me. Chapter 18, we have this chapter about forbidden sexual unions. So here's the summary of chapter 18. In verses 7 to 16, God gives us 10 incestuous relationships that are forbidden. Then he goes on to something a little more serious. In verses 17 to 20, he lists four other lewd relationships that are forbidden. Forbidden to his people and to the people who sojourn with them. And then in verse 21, he forbids child sacrifice. And if you look at that verse, it says, You shall not present any of your children to pass through for Molech. And do not profane the name of your God. I am Adonai. Because the peoples, ancient pagan peoples, would take their firstborn child and they would sacrifice it to the god Moloch by placing it alive in the fire. What a horrible thing. In one of the prophets, I think it's Jeremiah, God says, such a thing never even entered my mind to do. What a horrible thing. But why is this included in a chapter about Forbidden sexual encounters and unions. It's because of this. Sexual immorality always turns out costing the lives of our children. Either physically costing them their lives or or bringing a moral death to them. Death is always a result and our children are the ones who are affected the most. In the 60s, we had uh, the women's lib movement and, and sexual freedom and it feels good, just do it and, and all of that. And everybody thought, this is just wonderful. Well, not everybody thought it, but the world thought it. But then we saw abortion just shoot through the roof. How many millions of babies have been murdered because of this? But then there's a fourth one. In verses 22 and 23, 
God identifies an abomination and a perversion. Now, why does this go after child sacrifice? Because these two kinds of perversions do not produce children. These first 14 in categories A and B can produce offspring. But in category D, there's no offspring produced. And the abomination is bestiality, and the perversion is homosexuality. These do not produce children. And yet, they are listed here as things that are absolutely forbidden. They're an abomination and a perversion. Because by this point, it's no longer children even in view. Sex becomes simply a vehicle for my own pleasure. It's something that is utterly unfruitful in the world. It's something that brings neither joy nor happiness. It becomes a physical addiction. And then after that, in verse 24, we read these words. Do not become contaminated through any of these. For through all of these, the nations that I expel, it actually means vomit out before you, became contaminated. The land became contaminated, and I recalled its iniquity upon it, and the land disgorged, vomited its inhabitants. But you shall safeguard my decrees, my kukim, and my judgments, and not commit any of these abominations. So even though he refers to bestiality as an abomination, he is referring to all of these as abominations. The native or the sojourner who lives among you. For the inhabitants of the land who are before you committed all these abominations, and the land became contaminated. Let not the land vomit you for having contaminated it, as it vomited out the nation that was before you. For if anyone commits any of these abominations, the people doing so will be cut off from among their people. And we know from world history that whenever a civilization or a culture reached the point where bestiality, homosexuality, abortion, and these these sexual uh, immoral unions are not only permitted but endorsed, that civilization soon fell. It collapsed. If you wonder why civilizations collapse over history, will usually find this pattern. And that should be a warning to us here in the U.S. Here in the U.S., though, things are a little different. Here in the U.S., we see something happening that was uh, prophesied for the end times. It's not where everyone becomes totally apostate, but what we see here in the end times is something Daniel and John both prophesied, that the Holy become more holy. The righteous become more righteous. And the unrighteous become more unrighteous. What we see here in the end times is that there are two camps as different as night and day, heading two completely different directions. Unlike other falls in civilizations, this one has a dividing line where there are two separate groups. And... um, So we want to make sure we're in the right group. We want to be those who cling to God's moral code, to his Torah, to his chukot, 
and to live our lives in a way that the entire world will say, well, that's illogical, that makes no sense. But if we stay the path, I promise you, it will make perfect sense someday. So let's be faithful to him. So, discussion questions. Our portion begins with the words, after the death of Aaron's two sons. So why wasn't this chapter placed immediately after chapter 10? You might want to take some time and just quickly review those five and a half chapters that intercede. And what does it tell you about discernment and obeying God when things do not seem logical? Because Nadoff and Navahu, they did everything exactly the way common sense told them. And you see how it turned out for them. Read Psalm 119, verses 1 to 8. Read them again. Describe and discuss each of the six terms used for God's instructions. And I hope from this point on, as you read the Torah, you read the Psalms, or anywhere in the Scriptures, you'll keep these six categories of God's instructions um, on your fingertips. You understand what they are. They're very specific. Review and identify from memory the three major categories of sin. Can you do it from memory? And always keep those in mind as well. And number four, identify the two major consequences of sexual sin in a society. And I'm sure you're going to have a rich discussion and your discussion will branch out into many more areas than this. But I hope that uh, the teaching today gives you a, uh, a launch pad, so to speak, to, uh, to, to really have some great discussions on this amazing Torah portion. So God bless you and, and let's close in prayer. Our Father and King, thank you so much for the wisdom that your Torah, that your testimonies, that your precepts, your statutes, your commandments, your judgments all provide us. Father, thank you so much. Lord, may we not take them lightly. And may we never be guilty again of taking one of your rules, one of your orders, and then submitting it to our own human reasoning and then either obeying it or casting aside because it makes sense or it doesn't. Father, help us to be bondservants to you who will obey you without asking questions, except for one. How can I fulfill this commandment for my king to the best of my ability and with a heart of love? Lord, let that be our only question when it comes to our obedience to you. And we'll give you the praise and glory for it all, Yeshua's precious name. Amen.